It's the Locked On Podcast Network, your team every day. Hi, it's Jamie, progressive number one, number two employee. Leave a message at the... Hey, Jamie, it's me, Jamie. This is your daily pep talk. I know it's been rough going ever since people found out about your acapella group, Mad Harmony, but you will bounce back. I mean, you're the guy always helping people find coverage options with the Name Your Price tool. It should be you giving me the pep talk. Now get out there, hit that high note, and take Mad Harmony all the way to nationals this year! Sorry, it's pitchy. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. You are Locked On Jazz. Your daily podcast on the Utah Jazz. Part of the Locked On Podcast Network. Your team every day. It is locked on jazz for the 26th of September. Attack, attack, attack. Plus other insightful comments from Media Day and get to know Derek Favors. It's all coming up on today's edition of Locked on Jazz. How are you? I'm David Locke, radio voice of the Utah Jazz, Jazz NBA Insider. This is Locked On Jazz. You can get it on iTunes, Android. You can tell Alexa. You can tell Google Home to do it. It's all there for you. And I, when I'm finished recording this, get to get in a car and drive down to the practice facility and watch an NBA practice. It is starting today. Awesome. So fired up. Just can't wait to get going. Yesterday was just a taste of it. I hope you enjoyed the coverage on locked on or on utahjazz.com uh, and had that for you. A lot of fun interviews. We'll run through kind of my takeaways and what I saw uh, from all of that and uh, what some of the most interesting comments were and then get to know Derek Favors today and then we'll keep sharing what everybody has to say. Is We're, we're underway. We are underway. Today's show is brought to you by Murdoch Hyundai. I'm driving the Ionic, which is their new hybrid. It's really terrific. Uh, I, I actually am interested. My dad's coming into town. He has the new Prius back in the Bay Area, and I'm going to have him drive it and see what he thinks. But this is – I'm impressed. Uh, about 55 miles to the gallon, drives smoothly, good power, really comfortable. Very cool. All right, so – We'll get to that a little bit more about that in a second. All right, so the biggest takeaway of the day uh, was Quinn Snyder in the interview uh, that I uh, did with him in which he talked about attack, 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 and talked about action before the waiting for a pick in the drag screen and the flow. After made baskets, the Jazz get into flow and get into their offense. But what a year ago, what the Jazz, what Quinn Snyder spent most of the summer on was, all right, what are we doing late in games? Why are we not defensive rebounding? Where are the failures to our late game struggles? I asked him what was the focus this year, and the answer, he said, uh, was – the first kind of six to six seconds, eight seconds after a miss offensively. And he said, attack, 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 attack. When, Rudy, when Ricky Rubio was doing the interview with me, he walked by and said, attack, 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 attack. And so what he wants to see is a push ahead and a go. Donovan Mitchell's a huge part of that. Dante Exum's a huge part of that. Rodney Hood, will he run? You know, he he made the comment in the past 
we've had some guys whose instinct and comfort level was to play in the half court. That That's clearly Gordon. Gordon was carrying the largest workload of anybody in the NBA, basically, last year. Between ball handling, time on the floor, miles run. Like, it get he got right up there at the top. I mean... You, you start running into some of the numbers, and his body load was as high as anyone in the league. And so I do think that part of what happened there is that Gordon wanted to play in the half court. He wasn't going to run the floor in the same manner that some other guys maybe were willing to or, or you know, that maybe Quinn would have liked, but it's too hard to ask him. So... Now I think the hope is now I, I don't see Rodney as a runner, but maybe maybe Rodney will be a runner this year. Now that's hard. It's really really hard when you are suddenly being asked to be a runner when you're also you know suddenly having to be the lead dog. And we'll talk a little bit about that as he you know he seemed to have um, an understanding of what his kind of of what his role is going to be this year as as the lead guy. Uh, and, and I'm not sure that you can actually ask. But Donovan's a runner. Maybe Ricky's going to be a runner. Maybe we're going to see something out of Cephalosha was a guy that Quinn mentioned is a runner. So that, I think, is at least something to keep an eye on. As one of the my biggest takeaway of media day was attack, 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 attack. And that's where Quinn and we'll see it hopefully in practice today where Quinn really is trying to push them to early action, get going in the first six seconds, eight seconds of the shot clock. And if you look at the jazz last year, the jazz used as few as possessions early in the shot clock as just about anyone in the league. Uh, and that is. You know, that's an area where, frankly, that's pretty – the numbers say – I think some of these numbers are a little misleading, um, but I think that there, there's something to uh, getting those early possessions. It, the, the num- You know, the numbers are – like, if you just go – and I, I hate the way the NBA does this because I, I wish it was 22 to 24 is weird on the shot clock. 18 to 22 sometimes can be a – offensive rebound and things of that nature. But if you just look at 18 to 22 on the shot clock, the Jazz used 8.4% of their possessions last year, in which was the lowest of any team in the NBA. And if you just go in to go grab the meat, and when we did, we were great. We were the fifth best team in the league at it. But if you look at the middle range, the effective field goal percentage of the average team in that time period is is 59%. That's the league average effective field goal percentage is 50%. So to be bypassing those fir- that first six seconds of the shot clock, which is really what we were doing at 8.4%, we're, the, the Suns were the best at 19. The league average was around 13. And we were just re- – just there, you're, there's nothing particularly good about, frankly, in my opinion, being that far on the edge of a pendulum. I'm not sure I really think Phoenix at 19% is good on the pendulum either. Uh, the Warriors are so special that maybe we can move them. But Oklahoma City was at 17%, but they only shot 56% in those circumstances, effective field goal percentage. So they, you know, 
it's it wasn't entirely productive for them to be that fast. If you move to 15 to 18 on the shot clock, which is getting into some early action, we were still low. We're at 13%. The league average uh, of that is around 17%. And we were second lowest in the league. Only Minnesota, interestingly enough, I think, with, with Rubio, was uh, even less so. The league average effective field goal percentage in that time period is 54%. When we went, we were good. We were at 55%. But you just can't afford to be you know, this far on this low on the spectrum. If you take 15, nine seconds on the shot clock, and the first nine seconds on the shot clock, and you take the league average – uh, compared to where we were, it, it's considerably different. Uh, again, I don't love the first two seconds on the shot clock as a as a as a way to kind of judge anything uh, because I think you you know that's offensive rebounds and some things of that sort. But just giving you a, an estimate, if you eliminate the first two seconds of the shot clock and go to from from fifteen to twenty two, okay. Um, then thir- the league average is 30% of your possessions, and we were at 21%. Uh, that's just too little. It's just too little. Uh, and and so that's where we've got to find some some offense, and that's what Quinn's biggest focus was in this offseason, was how do you find those uh, opportunities and those chances in the offense, and I think that'll be really interesting to see. And, and I, I don't think this is a criticism of Gordon in any way, shape, or form, but that's not something that G did a great deal. Okay, that's not something that Gordon did a great deal. He, he and, and Gordon may, and maybe we're going to find out that Gordon goes to Boston, who likes to run, and they're going to do it a lot more, and Gordon would have liked and actually had that in him. He didn't have it in him when he was with us. Uh, so that was true. That was the key. But to me, that was the number one takeaway of the whole deal. I'll run through. I thought there were some other things as well, but I want to remind you that today's show is brought to you by Murdoch Hyundai. They're located at 4646 South State Street in Murray. They're also in Linden and in Logan. I've gotten to know the Murdoch family. That was the first thing I was impressed with. The Chase marketing group sat me down. I got to know Blake. I've played golf with him since. And really, and it's so interesting. I've talked a lot of business with Blake and what it's like to be a son of one of these families that you kind of get put into this position. And there's such pride by the Murdochs in what you're experiencing with them and how they want you to feel about them when they leave. They, they I, I got to be honest, I think when you leave a Murdoch dealership, they're thinking that you're, you're feeling your connection is to the Murdochs, not necessarily entirely the brand or the specific cars. That's what they pride themselves on. I, I think Blake would agree with me on that. And so they want to make sure you have that. So what are the things a dealership can control? They can give you oil changes for life. They can extend their customer service hours to make sure it's more convenient for you. They can give you car washes. They're going to do all of those little, what are the things they can do? They can respect your opinion. They can make it easier for you. They can try to give you the best price available. Those are the things that the Murdochs are going to do and try to give you uh, that experience. Now, with the Hyundai specifically, I have now driven the Santa Fe, which blew my mind. I loved the Santa Fe. Blew my mind. With all, I had all the gadgets on it. I had all the impressive little features on it. And I can't imagine an SUV for that dollar price and that drives that well. The Tucson, incredible value proposition. Enjoyed that. And now I'm trying their hybrids, Ionic, and super, super impressed by it. And all of it, 
and if you're in the market, if you're going Prius or you're doing something of that nature, I check it out. I think you you got to ride. You got to take a drive in it. Um, and I I'm a bad comp right now because we have the just like first or second Prius, and this thing just blows it away. Blows it away. It's not even close. I'm curious to see what happens this weekend. My dad's coming out. I'm going to have him drive it because he has the new Prius and see what the experience is on the difference. So check it out. That's the Ionic. Really smooth ride. Don't feel any of the hybrid. Gas mileage has been brilliant. Great. Really good coming up the canyon as I live up in Park City. Uh, so very impressed by that. Hot. Murdoch's at 4646 South State Street. They have the grand reopening. And remember, with every Hyundai, you get the 100,000-mile Hyundai Assurance uh, guarantee as well with their warranty. $5,750 off the Elantra right now. I could keep going. There's deals everywhere. All right, here are some of the takeaways I had. Uh, my big kind of thing on the utahjazz.com broadcast was the adults, the adults in the room. And I, 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 people kind of laughed at it, and maybe it's not coming across correctly. What I mean, but talking to Cephalosa and Udo and Jerebko, these are adults. They've been in the league. They've played in Europe. They've traveled the world. They understand. They have, uh, in the case of Cephalosa and Jerebko, I don't know about Udo. They have children. Um, they are. They just have a maturity, a calmness, uh, an intellect uh, to who they are as people that can only help you. A great deal. It, I, I think in all three of those cases, it means they're a little better than you realize, right? So I'm a numbers guy, and frankly, it comes down to the numbers. But if I if I look at Cephalosha and I look at Jerebko and I look at Udo, you know, my guess is that those teams, you kind of look inside the numbers and you say, well, how were what were they like when they were on the floor? And, oh, gosh, they were a little better when they were on the floor, I wonder why. And, and that's the case. Boston last year with Jarebko on the floor was plus three when he was off was minus point four. Year before, plus three, minus point three. Why is that? Because he's an adult. Because he just, uh, he's, he's, he's grown up. He understands the game. He knows how to play. He's experienced. Though it's subtle. But that's what struck me with all three of these, the two times I've met them along the way, is that they're adults. And adults help you win. Cephalosa in Atlanta last year, they were not better, but the year before, plus three when he's on, minus two when he's off, plus 11 when he's on, plus seven when he's off, plus Oklahoma City, plus four when he's on, minus five when he's off. The year before that, plus 12 when he's on, plus 4.6 when he's off. The year before that, plus eight when he's on, plus one when he's off. The year before that, plus three when he's on, minus three when he's off. I mean, it's incredible. Cephalosa's, until last year, Cephalosa's plus minus was when they were on the court, listen to this run from 2009, plus 2.3, minus 5. I'm going to round them up or down. Plus 3, minus 3. Plus 8, plus, versus plus 1. Plus 12, versus plus 5. Plus 4, versus minus 5. Plus 11, versus plus 8. Plus 3, versus minus 2 until last year. Okay, maybe now let's get concerned, right? Maybe he got old. I don't think so. I think Atlanta was really bad last year. And it did, and, and, and it wasn't the same team last year. He's 33 years old. There's a chance. Worth noting, there's a chance. But that's, that's what jumps out about these guys to me is the incredible adults in the room, plus minus, kind of, that's what shows. Uh, even Udo, by the way, and this is old and he's a better player today, at least that's the thought. Uh, if you go to his Golden State days, 
they were really good when he was on the floor. They weren't necessarily always better, but they were generally pretty good uh, when he was on the floor. Um, and so, uh, and, and in L.A. in his final, they were much better when he was on the floor than off the floor. But the, his minutes are so, will be interesting to see uh, with him. Derek Favors, who you'll hear from coming up here in the Get to Know segment, uh, the he had a, a great understanding, I thought, of he and Gobert and what it uh, means for them to play together. I thought it was interesting, his comment about making – he sent out a, a, an anti-Trump tweet, which you can have your opinion on it, but I thought it was just interesting that he would do it because that's not something he used to do. And he talked about, yeah, I mean, I care more. I'm paying attention about things. At 21, I wouldn't have cared. I now care. I got kids. These things bother me. Um, I thought that was a very interesting perspective of his growth as a human. And he's ready to go. He says he's healthy. We'll see. He could be a real game changer. Uh, he told a really interesting story about working with a heavy ball and doing some work there. Uh, and, and I'll get your um, – uh, I'll tell you more about that. Rodney Hood, understanding the burden. I hope Rodney's comfortable. My concern is that the burden's big on him this year. And I'm hoping that he is comfortable this year with what he's doing uh, and just plays himself and doesn't try to be uh, too much. Uh, Rubio, very interesting that he's talked to Quinn Snyder more than any other coach that he's ever had. Fifth coach in five years. I thought he seemed free of the burdens of being Ricky Rubio. I'm hoping he's going to be this way. I might be making this up in my head. This is a guy who became as the second coming and then didn't live up to it. And then he's drafted before staff and all these various aspects of his career. And I'm hoping that he can just play free to that and go Joe Ingles on Gordon Hayward, hard to tell whether it was pure tongue-in-cheek or whether there was really a little bitterness there. Um, Sound like there might have been something a little salty there, I would say. But I don't know. You know, Joe's so tongue-in-cheek, sometimes it's hard to tell. Dante, I thought, was interesting. He's still, in my opinion, transitioning to being the adult I'm talking about. He's not an adult yet. Like, he's still a young kid. Or a young adult, or whatever you want to call it. But when I'm talking about these adults in the room, which I think Favors has moved into, I don't, that's not Dante yet. And I could feel it. He's still trying to search for how he's supposed to approach things, what he's supposed to do. He's still growing. He's still looking for the confidence. I thought the story he told about Summer League where they were on him about, you know, everyone always is talking about using the left hand. He doesn't use his left hand enough. And his point is, why do I need to use it if they're not making me do it? And they forced him to go left, and he drove to the basket, and he dunked coming off a left-hand drive, and he turned to Alex Jensen going back up the floor and said, I told you I could do that. Um, I thought that was a very telling comment uh, that there's at least that kind of fight in him. Uh, that he that he's willing to uh, put that out there and um, and kind of have that chest pump or puff out a little bit. I did, you know, that's that's a good sign uh, from him. And Donovan Mitchell is just so incredibly smooth, um, so so incredibly smooth with all of his conversations and all of his talk. You just hope he grasps it as well as he talks about it, and he's not just saying the right thing. Like, I don't think he's a con artist uh, in any way, shape, or form, but he's so smooth it almost makes you uncomfortable. 
he's just incredible in these interviews. He, if you go listen to the Tony Bradley uh, with him on the podium, uh, he was great with Tony. Uh, funny parts about him not having a driver's license and him, uh, Tony giving him rides. So I thought there were a lot of really, really cool uh, things with Donovan. We're going to see. Uh, the open floor, I'm telling you, he goes to the rack, it looks like Dwayne Wade. When he goes to the basket, it looks like Dwayne Wade. We may, this may turn out to be a ridiculous comment on my part. But that, that is truly what it looks like. And um, I, I think it's going to – I'm so curious to see. And he said – I thought the most interesting thing he said was, you know what, I'm a high turnover player. And that's what I was. And the rule we had at uh, Kentucky – or at Louisville, sorry, uh, big rivals. At Louisville, um, was if you if you turn it over, you better go get it back. And that's why I led the team in steals, because I turned it over. I, I, I don't know whether there's going to be such a willingness to allow him to play with that same approach here, uh, but we, we shall see. It could be very interesting to see if he can de- develop that. So that, my friends, is are my takeaway. Those, my friends, are my takeaways from uh, everything that took place uh, today or yesterday at Media Day. Derek Favors, I thought, was quite interesting in this conversation. You'll hear that maturity uh, and some interesting comments to him, so we'll have that coming up for you in your get-to-know. If you'd like to advertise on Locked On Jazz during the NBA season. It is filling up a bit, but if you'd like to, email me at dlock09 at gmail.com. We have kind of 10 inventory spots available for each show, and I'd say per week, and we're about seven or eight of those, I think, right now. So uh, if you'd like to be involved, reach a male audience between the ages of 18 and 54, uh, please email me at dlock09 at gmail.com. Here's your get-to-know with Derek Favors. Let's get to know Derek Favors. If you took me back to your hometown, uh, where would, what would you show me? What would, where would you take me? If I took you back to my hometown, I'll probably take you to uh, the neighborhood that I grew up and I'll show you where I first started playing basketball at. And I'm pretty sure you'll have a good laugh at that and be like, how in the world did that happen? And what would I see? Um, you remember I told you about the, I'll show you the, the, the recycle bin that me and my friend had. I'll show you, um, after we graduated from the recycle bin, my friend, he um got a, a basketball goal for Christmas one year. We started playing on that. And he also got a trampoline, so we started dunking, jumping off trampoline, dunking the ball, and we end up breaking the backboard on the um well not break, we bent it. So I'll show you that. I was like, yo, David, this is how I learned how to play basketball on a bent goal that we broke when I was a kid. Um, <laughs> um I'll, I'll just show you around, show you around the neighborhood, show you around the city, and um you know, you'll probably get a good laugh out of it. If you took me back to your childhood room, what would you what would what would be what would I see in your childhood room? You'll see a lot of posters on the wall of um, I used to have a lot of posters on the wall of um, some of my idols growing up basketball wise. I had um, Tracy McGrady, um, Kevin Garnett, Kobe. I had LeBron when he first came out, and I also had um, I had a a, um, a poster on the wall with with um, Al Jefferson on it actually when he was in high school when they was getting ready to come out. Al, Marvin, um, Dwight. Josh Mills, Sean Livingston, all those guys. I had a poster of that on my wall also. But um, after that, you no, know, my room was just kind of junky after that. What's the Atlanta lineage? Does it go Dwight, Josh, you? What's the order of kind of the great Atlanta players? Um, what do you mean? Like who came after whom? 
Like oh. Dwight was you felt Dwight was the man, right? When he came to the number one pick of the draft, but he was outside of Atlanta. So he was Georgia. Uh, I mean, it's, it really depends on, like, who you ask because, you know, it's different eras. Um, there's a lot of guys that came from Atlanta, not just Atlanta, but from Georgia, period. There's a lot of guys who went professional. But I'll say in my, kind, in my era, my little era that I have, it'll probably be, um, you know, Dwight, um, Lou Williams, Josh Smith, um, then me. Um, who else? It's, I mean, it's, it's a lot of guys that – those would be my top four. Your first nickname ever was Big Slim, if I remember correctly. Is that yeah. right? And yeah. why was it Big Slim? Because I was just super skinny when I was young. I was just this skinny kid with no meat on the bones and nothing, no muscles, nothing, just skin and bones, basically. And uh, that's what people call me. They just called me Slim, Big Slim or whatever, because I was also tall, but I was just so skinny that they just called me Big Slim. There's a lot of downtime in the NBA. What do you do? What is your, what do you do to pass downtime? Um, hmm. it's a lot of downtime. Um, sometimes I watch movies. Sometimes I play video games. Sometimes I, you know, um, go outside, walk around, go to the mall, go to different restaurants, or just whatever whatever city I'm in and. Whatever is exciting to do or something different to do, I'll just go check it out sometimes. Now, when you first joined us, you were the king of room service. Like, I don't know if you ever went out for dinner in the first yeah. few years. No, I didn't. So when did you start going out for dinner? Like, what is that? Like, and, and what's the, why is that? Why does the young kid just always stay in and then eventually now you're, you're heading out for dinner and things of that nature as you're um, a vet? I don't know. I think when I first got here, I just... I was just ready to go home, basically. Um, but as I got older, you know, I just started wanting to try different food, different stuff, um, see different things. So, you know, I kind of opened myself up a little bit more as I got older. What's your favorite road restaurant? Um, I love going to Memphis. Memphis got some pretty good restaurants because I love barbecue. Uh, Memphis. Um, Where are you going? You go Central? Tell you the truth, I don't know the name of it. I just I know how to get there. I don't know the name of it. <laughs> I just know how to get there. Um, go to Miami. Oh, what's the name of the restaurant in Miami? Zuma. Zuma's really good. It was another one I went to with one of my one of my friends down there. I forgot the name of it. it was a little out a little bit. Zuma's really good. Um, New York. See, I'm, I'm bad with remembering the names. I went to a restaurant with my um, with my agent. It was really good. I'm going I'm to get the name of it and tell you. Good. Cause the only reason I really ask this question is so I can go steal all your best restaurants. <laughs> no, nah, this restaurant was really good. So I'm going to get it. I'm going to get the name. I'm going to give it to you. What is, do you know the phrase guilty pleasure? Yeah. What is your guilty pleasure? Food-wise or just anything? Just anything. Oh, no, I don't have that many guilty pleasures. Um, I don't have any, to tell you the truth. There's not a purchase you make that's your guilty pleasure? There's not a... Food? Well, I mean, with purchase-wise, I mean, I don't count it as a guilty pleasure because I want it. So I don't really count it as a guilty pleasure. Oh, <laughs> uh, food? <laughs> I want it, and I can get it. I want it, I'm going to get it, so it's not a guilty pleasure. All right, I got it. We're good. I mean, it'll probably be a guilty pleasure if I tell, like, my mom or uh, or my financial guy, like, yeah, I just went and bought like this watch or something. It'll probably be a guilty pleasure to them, but to me, like I wanted it, so I'm, I'm going to get it. <laughs> All right, let's talk a little bit about uh, just kind of the road you've taken to get here. The, uh, building off these two books, Angela Duckworth's Grit and Daniel Coyle's Talent Code. What made you believe you were going to make it? 
what made me believe I was gonna make it to the NBA? All the hard work I put in. I, I mean, I pretty much, I didn't know, but I kind of like, man, if I put in all this hard work, and I'm out here out playing a lot of guys, you know, I gotta make it. So that was one. Of the, I believed in my work ethic. Basically, that's how I knew I was gonna make it. So when you look back at yourself as a kid, what were you doing that was differently than other kids? How were you different in that in that pre stage? Man, I, I sacrificed a lot. I didn't even go to my senior prom in high school. I was in the gym. I was in the gym doing that. Time. I was in the gym with my um my AAU coach or mentor, friend, whatever you want to call him. I was in the gym with him every Sunday from seventh grade through high school. Every Sunday while everybody else was at home, I was in the, in the gym on Sunday at nine o'clock in the morning, working for like two hours. Um, every day before the basketball season in high school started, I was in the gym. After the season, I was in the gym. So I think I just I outworked everybody, and um, I still live by that to this day. That you know, I just outwork people, and then um, eventually good things going to happen. So, in the book, Angela Duckworth writes that really to be gritty to some extent is to resist complacency, to resist oh this is good enough. So how do you keep pushing yourself beyond where you are? Um. Now, I still believe I can get better, a lot better than what I am now because I still got so much stuff that I haven't showcased yet. So, uh, I mean, I could sit back and say, you know what, I'm good, I'm fine. You know, I can score in the post. I could um, hit a mid-range jumper. I could defend and rebound. I'm good. But especially with this offseason, I kind of took it to another level where, you know, I, I extended, work on extending my range, work on getting in the, in the best cardio shape that I can, I can get in, Worked on on ball handling, just work on different scenarios in the offensive system so I can continue to get better so I won't be happy with where I'm at. I heard a story, I don't know if it was a year ago or two years ago, I'm going to leave players' names out of it, but the coach basically said to you, you got a choice now. You can either be this guy who's had a great 12-year career, but he's just a player, or you can try to be this guy who people remember. Is that what was your reaction when they did? I don't know exactly when. I don't know how much you want to share specifically here on this. Mm-hmm. Um, when was it, or how did it come down? What was your reaction to that? I was like, I want to be the guy that people remember. <laughs> what are you talking about? So um, that's what made me work even harder on my game. I mean, last year I just I got hurt. I worked so much on my game the previous summer, and I really couldn't showcase it because I got hurt. But even when I got hurt, you know, I still was showcasing stuff that I worked on. But um. I wanted to be the guy who who be remembered. So that's the way I go into every offseason, just try to keep working, try to keep finding new things to work on, finding different ways to um, – techniques to improve my shot, to improve my post game, to improve everything. So I'm always trying to find little things to keep improving on. What's the hardest part of trying to improve? Um, The time. You got to have patience with it. I think. I mean, that's my opinion. I think it's just the time because you want it to come quick, but sometimes it's not going to come quick. You know, you might have to be in a gym maybe a month or two just to, you know, get muscle memory on your jumper or something. So I think that's the that's the hardest part. But for me, I was commit. I'm committed to it, so it really doesn't matter. You might have just touched on a little bit. There's a great quote in one of these two books that elite performance. They actually use the word superlative performance is the combination of a dozen small skills, mm-hmm. each one learned at a level where it's drilled into one larger habit. From a basketball standpoint, what comes to your mind when you think of these small, minute skills that you're developing to become a, a basketball player? 
Um, f- footwork. You know, you do different type of footwork moves. It might be boring, but you do like a hundred of them. And that'll help you out. A jump shot, your jumper, you're working on your technique, keeping your elbow tucked in, the release, follow through, balance. Um, post moves, you might be up and under a thousand times. And it's, it's a lot of stuff. I mean, it's a, it's a lot of things. It's just what you want to work on, what you feel you need to work on, and, you know, what what do you want to improve on to, to get it. What is the case in your career where you've pushed yourself furthest out of your natural spot where you've extended yourself beyond your comfort zone i say this summer how just because i was coming off being hurt you know and i was just i was just motivated to get better so i think i just pushed myself to the furthest i pushed myself before as far as like doing cardio work doing basketball work doing weights you know it was days that i was exhausted i didn't even feel like doing it and I just just went ahead and did it. So what gets you to come back when you don't want to come back? What got me to come back? Just being motivated. I knew I, I was hurt last year. You know, I was like, man, I'm not fitted to go through that again. So that just kept motivating me to get up. I was getting up probably like around five o'clock every morning doing off season, doing that. So I didn't want to go through that again. Have you watched uh, any film of yourself last year? No, I didn't want to. It's weird, by the way. Yeah, no, I know. I didn't want to. I mean, I pretty much watched enough film during the season of how I was moving, and I was just making mental notes during the season. Like, okay, this all season, this is what I need to work. I need to work back on improving my lateral speed, my foot speed on the perimeter. I need to work on you know, my running technique. I had to start over from scratch. And I got to work on my cardio, my explosion, um, everything. So that, that's what motivated me to keep going back because I knew I had to work on it. Yet all year, whenever we asked you, you said you were fine. Was that just trying to convince yourself? I'm a tough guy. <laughs> you know, I always say, man, if I can't walk, I'm not going to play. If I could if I could walk, you know, I'd go out there and play. So that's that's how I am. So, I mean, when y'all were asking me, was I fine? I'm like, yeah, I'm good. I'm good to go. You have any? Did you have any doubt during that process of whether you'd ever get or whether you will ever get back to being the Derek Favors that we saw two years ago? No, I didn't have any doubt. I was just, just weighing it out because I knew it was something that, that would probably take time to, to heal. It was going to heal on its own. It just took time. So I didn't have any doubt. I was just kind of – I wasn't patient. I was just kind of like, man, hurry up, hurry up, hurry up, hurry up. So, what's your what's your best personal story of perseverance, overcoming, fighting through, whatever cliche? Uh, sure. I want to say this past season <laughs> that just happened because nah, I, put, I pushed through a lot. I mean – but I had the bone bruise in the knee. That was painful. I don't know if you had it, anybody had it, but that's that's painful. And um, you know, I fought through it, even in the um, in the playoffs. You know, I fought through that. I was in pain the whole time. I was just like, man, we in the playoffs, man. I'm a, I'm a play. I just have to fight through it and you know find some way to just take the pain. Well, you may have, you may have singularly won a series as much as anyone did. Yeah, I, I was fighting that whole time. I was in pain, but you know I had to do what I had to do. Thank you very much. I appreciate it. Boy, if there's ever a guy I'm rooting for this year, it's Derek Favors. Clearly went through a lot last year. I think it's been emotionally hard on him to be the kind of the man and then forgot and then pushed to the back and oh, he can't play with Rudy. But, you know, this was his franchise, for, or at least supposed to be for a brief moment. He patiently sat behind Paul and Al and – he was going to be the man that when he finally became, he gets injured and Rudy emerges. It's just been a hard road for him. And I, 
I, I don't think anyone's treated him wrong, but I think he could be really bitter, and he doesn't sound that way. He's just ready to go. So uh, I, I'm impressed. Um, I, I'm impressed by where he is, and let's hope uh, that he's able to have a great, great season. This has been Locked On Jazz, part of the Locked On Podcast Network. Rejecting the screen has been retweeted by Kobe, Dame Lillard, and Vince Carter. So it's fair to say you should give it a shot. I'm Noah Kozlov. And I'm Adam Stanko. Rejecting the screen hits your feed every Tuesday and Thursday. On Tuesday, we talk hoops and a little bit of life. On Thursday, we go ISO with a guest. Stories from anyone and everyone who has touched the NBA with tales we promise you've never heard before. Find Rejecting the Screen right now wherever you get podcasts and hit that subscribe button.